Telling the truth is a dangerous business. Honesty and something don't go hand in hand. <laughs> no. If you tell people you play the accordion, no one will let you play in a rock and roll band. Movie Court. Today on trial is Ishtar, a movie that is synonymous with failure and box office flop. But our defense attorney, Kyle Bornheimer, is claiming that it is an unfairly maligned movie, and he will uh, defend its honor today. Say hello, Kyle. Uh, hello, everybody. On the opposite side of the case is Steve Kruger. Thank you. Thank you so much. I feel like this is actually a movie I should give a synopsis for because I think it's safe to say a lot of the people in the audience probably haven't even seen this movie. But uh, Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman co-star as a pair of miserably bad and self-deluding singer-songwriters who accept the best gig they can get in Morocco and get caught up in the deadly political intrigues of a neighboring North African country, the fictitious Ishtar, involving the CIA, a left-wing revolutionary organization, and international jihadis. Isn't this That's the brink? Mouthful. Isn't this HBO's the brink? Well, you know what I found interesting about this movie is that it's Dumb and Dumber before there was Dumb and Dumber. Well, you are making my argument for me. <laughs> uh, Steve, do you want to weigh in here? Um, I listened to every word you said about the description of said movie, and yet I could remember none of <laughs> not, None of what you said. It's as if the logline was written and then a different movie was made. I don't know who the bad guy was. I don't know who the good guy was. I remember that there were two giant movie stars that were in way, way over their head in terms of comedy. And just a really, really bad idea, badly executed. So I look forward to a heated discussion of said film. Is that Was that an opening statement or do we... Uh, was that no, your... I was just I oh, okay, was great. clearing well, my throat. Well, the opening statement. Should we start, sir? Yes, please begin. Your Honor... I have a lot of respect for the law. What's the line from Philadelphia? I, I, I love the law. Um, and in its purity, the law deals not in, in crusades, but in facts. However, this isn't a real court, and I can do whatever I want. And I choose today to embark upon an emotional, passion-filled crusade. And that crusade is to get all you millennials out there to run to your nearest iTunes store or your Netflix shop and learn about the films and career of Mr. Warren Beatty. In my estimation, the most underrated writer, director, movie star of the last half of the 20th century. Now, I'm supposed to be defending Mr. Beatty's very difficult to defend ode to Bob Hope Ishtar today. <laughs> I'm going to warn you up front. You'll probably hear me talk more about Shampoo, Reds, and Bugsy. But I will defend it as a film that has been maligned purely because of what you sort of alluded to in your opening statements. Because it's been held up as this Heaven's Gate type master flop that's supposed to, I don't know be a cautionary tale about megalomania filmmaking or something. But big swings like Ishtar should be taken once in a while. And I will prove that at the very least, this is an interesting oddity in a stellar career and not quite the colossal misfire that everyone claims it is. Your response, Steve Kruger. Well, that was a right pretty speech. <laughs> <laughs> He's always very complimentary before he lays in. <laughs> it's, you know what? It's the same paradigm. I learned it from like a Perry Mason when I was a kid. Or maybe Old, uh, old Ironsides or uh, Barnaby Jones. One of those shitty shows. 
Anyway, that was a very nice speech, and Mr. Beatty is a talented, talented man, as is Mr. Hoffman, as is Miss Elaine May, as is the Italian cinematographer, and as <laughs> is Charles Grodin. There's an amazing roster of people involved in this movie, yes. Yes. I had never seen Ishtar before, so I brought to this proceedings no preconceived notions about said film. I had heard the stories of it, but I didn't believe them to be true, and... As you can tell from my tone, I am a fan of comedy. I enjoy the laughter, though I do it quite infrequently. I've been told recently I have resting bitch face. Um, (laughs) I don't know if that's a compliment or not, but in the darkness of my heart, I do enjoy comedy. I want to laugh. A comedy should be funny. And that's the law. And this movie violates the law time and time again. It is terribly, horribly, terribly terribly, horribly (laughs) unfunny. This will be a fascinating case because I feel like I could be swayed one way or the other. The gist of the inception of this movie was Elaine May had done a bunch of script doctoring work, both credited and uncredited for Warren Beatty, and Beatty felt that she deserved a chance to direct a movie, put himself on the line with Columbia Pictures in this movie she wanted to direct, uh, and he said his entire negotiating stance was give her whatever she wants. There's some fascinating stuff going on in this movie, but let's start with Beatty and Hoffman. This is from Pauline Kael's review. The two roles could be handled more easily and probably more energetically by, say, Steve Martin and Bill Murray or SCTV performers. When Beatty and Hoffman play small-timers, it's a reverse conceit, a form of affectation. And there does seem to be a little bit of that going on in these performances. If you look at, I mean, that's 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 the thing that glares out at you as two talented people are taking on something. And as as Kruger said, you know, and they're in over their head. And, and it's really kind of fun to examine it. I mean, there's a scene, one of the bits where they're composing a song together, where Beatty riffs like on something. He uses like the word herb or oregano or something. And Hoffman stops and says, no, no herb. I've never heard a song that had an herb in it. And not to pin my whole defense on one line that made me chuckle, but it points to the fact that they they were onto something here. You know, I can imagine them thinking, oh, the composing the song scenes will be fun. The performing them awkwardly in front of an indifferent audience at lame events will be fun. I can see why anybody would find this as a as maybe p- potentially funny. Perhaps they try too hard, and the execution in this movie is is hit or miss. But it's not a complete wash. Now. As you said, the question is: Are Hoffman and Beatty the ones you would choose to pull off this? Are they? Tina Fey and Amy Poehler? Are they, you know, Aykroyd and Chase? Are they Farrell and, and, and John C. Riley? You could argue that Abbott and Costello. Right. <laughs> well, well, that well, that brings me to the also to a point where like this is they aren't the first people that did a road comedy. I mean, this they did this movie. The other reason they did this is as as a callback and as a in the tradition of the road movies. So, you know, and they're two funny guys. They've both up to the point and since then are funny on camera. I mean, Beatty is hilarious in Shampoo and, and Heaven Can Wait. He's funny in Bullworth. He always puts comedy even into his more dramatic roles. So it's not like they had never been funny. Hoffman, of course, graduate, Midnight Cowboy, Tootsie leading up to this, the guy is funny. So now in this particular movie, they do labor through these bits a little bit. Some of them, I think, come off very funny in my opinion, but perhaps maybe too many of them come off a bit labored and a little proud of themselves. I mean, Hoffman, who has a tendency for being actory, was perhaps trying too hard. And I think Beatty, whose comic gift is a certain ease with himself, perhaps wasn't taking it seriously enough. You can almost see he, he, he almost had the more larky sort of sensibility in it of like, we're, we're kind of doing this as a lark. It seems like a lot of scenes that are funny theoretically. 
there's this meta thing that's happening, right? When when Hoffman is the ladies' man, and he's introducing Beatty at the bar, and yeah, and Beatty is the the nerdy one who can't speak to ladies. There's a part of me that's like, oh, I get it. I'm not really laughing at it, but you're right. But Beatty plays a great dolt, and he does it. In, there are moments when I think he's doing it really well. I mean, not as consistently well as he did in Shampoo, for instance, where he does that dolt masterfully. But I think he does a lot of great little dolt moments in this. And I, I think it was fun to, you know, again, maybe in theory, <laughs> however in execution, I'm not sure, that the the switch in personas that Hoffman is the ladies' man and Beatty, you know, playing a guy that sucks with a lady. I think, you know. Uh, Steve, you want to weigh in? I mean, you're so quiet today. Oh, you... I'm just, I'm enjoying this discussion because it is all moot. <laughs> the crime in this movie is its inability to capitalize on gags. It is a nod to a series of movies that no one in the 80s remembered or cared or are actually very funny. They took an alcoholic man who beat his children and Bob Hope, and they sent him to Morocco and they sang, and for some reason that was entertainment. I guess the internet had not been invented and pornography was not available, so people went to these horrible movies. It's 1987. We've already had Beverly Hills Cop. Uh, We've had The Terminator. This is categorized on Amazon Prime as an action comedy. There was not (laughs) a beat of action in the entire movie. Elaine May cannot stage action. She cannot create any excitement. And it is not a comedy. There are gags that should be hilarious. There should be set pieces. There should be laugh-out-loud moments, and there are none to be found. Dustin Hoffman is a very serious actor who's been in great movies, no comedies. I know, Tootsie, it's an anomaly. I beg the listeners to think of three funny movies that star Dustin Hoffman. The Graduate, Midnight Cowboy, Tootsie. Midnight Cowboy is a comedy. No, he's but he's funny in it. The first, the first I, 75% that, of that movie I, I, is a comedy. Wait, wait, he is the star above the title character of an action comedy. This ha- He has to carry the movie. It has <laughs> but to be you said three other movies. <laughs> but you, none of them, Midnight Cowboy, you don't put on for, like, hey, it's Christmas. The family's around. Let's let's watch A Hustler. Some families and, do. Uh, a, 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 <laughs> well, I, I don't know what you guys do at Christmas. You're, you're weirdos. <laughs> the Bornheimer House, Midnight Cowboy is on constantly. And yeah. Beatty is too stiff to pull off the dolt role. It, I, I, I completely agree, and I can't believe I'm saying this, with Pauline Kale, that communist, Imagine this movie. Just close your eyes. It's a couple of bumbling songwriters who get wrapped up in some horse shit in the Middle East. Imagine Chevy Chase and Bill Murray. How funny would that movie have been? It would be called Spies Like Us, and that didn't work either. These are actually really wonderfully. How dare you? Objection. (laughs) Spies Like Us is a much better film. Imagine a non-dead John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd in this. They are go-to comedy guys. Dustin Hoffman plays this seriously. I understand the meta. Okay, let's have the little ugly troll be the ladies' man and the guy who looks... He's got fuck-me eyes every every second. He's the guy who can't get laid, who's apparently a good humor man in New York trying to break into show business. The perfect example, go to Ishtar and ask for a blind camel. And he goes to Ishtar and asks the wrong guy for a blind camel. And that's a totally wasted opportunity. Imagine... Chevy Chase or Bill Murray in that scene. It's all flat with Beatty. He doesn't know where to find the joke. And you mentioned Dumb and Dumber. Jim Carrey, he knows where to find a joke, where to find a laugh. The crime is that there were gags, there were moments set up for these people, and because of their giant egos, they played it like it was a drama. And all the jokes just lay flat. 
One thing that Beatty and Hoffman had said in the early pre-production of this movie was that they didn't feel like they wanted it to leave New York, which points out one of the interesting things when I was watching it. When it does shift to the Middle East, boy, it becomes a different movie. The, the, the intrigue, suddenly it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Tonally, this thing is all over the place, and I think this is May's failure. She's the one that just seems completely in over her head in terms of Wait, who, every... who, who are you speaking of, Your Honor? I, I'm sorry. Elaine May, the oh, director not of the Oh, not the French woman that is pretending to be Arabic who's also, for some reason, confused as a boy? Well, here's what, here was my other question. Is she assumed to be a boy throughout this movie? I always assumed they knew she was a girl f- within, like, five minutes of figuring it out. But is there an ongoing uh, mystery to her gender? Well, they, they, I don't think they're ever mistaken about it. I think to others she is pretending to be to be a guy. So so she reveals it herself to them early, but to others she's supposed to be Isabella Johnny, um, masculine man. We're watching the airplane. See, this is where Hoffman is trying a little too hard when he's doing the headband bit, when he's wearing his, he's trying his Bruce Springsteen. It was like such an actory choice. Like, oh, you know what I'm going to do for this character? He's a guy that he aspires to be like Bruce Springsteen. So he wears headbands and, and flashy clothes. The essence of him. I also, I, I found these that. two, these two, their attempt at show business, which was kind of funny and obviously the germ of the story, these two horrible songwriters. But you spend 17 minutes of the movie with them in New York as failures, a flashback, a suicide attempt, a rabbi. They're terrible. And they're also, these. this is not a, a 29-year-old Dustin Hoffman. This is a 55-year-old man. They are old men who are terrible at songwriting and this is 1987. Like, we're a, a couple of years from Guns N' Roses and punk rock and all this great music. And what are they doing? They're like uh, Marty and Elaine from the Dresden. Well, it might be it might be the first time that both of these guys who were stars for the last 15 years before this or Well, 20, but they point out their age, too. They're not trying to pretend. Yeah, and I think that's the point of it, too. I mean, they're looking at Simon. They're, right, they're but, wondering. Uh, but one would think watching this movie, well, they're terrible in the beginning as singers. They'll go there, they'll get in trouble, and they'll have to really wow them with their... They'll have to write the greatest song. They'll have to perform to not get killed. But the sing, the, the songwriting dream gets forgotten until they're deep in the desert on that stupid, hey, go out there and you'll just die in the desert instead of we'll just shoot you because we're the worst CIA people ever. They realize, oh, we missed our our show at the Casablanca wherever. I mean, they just told, they spend so much shoe leather in the beginning setting up how they want to sing. They got this song. We're bigger, We're going to be bigger than Simon and Garfunkel, which if this movie were made today would show up in the third act as some sort of, there's there's Paul Simon just at the airport and whatever. Like, there, there's all these misplaced opportunities of a cameo of Art Garfunkel showing up as a CIA agent. Like, something. They set it up and then nothing happens. But I found them personally to be pathetic. Their badness is not convincing. I mean, it's interesting because when they're bad on stage, you don't quite buy that they're bad the way that we're supposed to buy it. Like, no one no one would pay whatever... They wouldn't be at that bar performing that awfully. And it's a, it's a, it's a hard tone to hit because if Will Ferrell and John C. Riley were doing this, if this was an Adam McKay movie and it was about two songwriters that were awful, it would be like Anchorman where they would have set up a world of absurdity more so that they had more latitude to be awful in really funny ways. Or if this was Ricky Gervais doing it, he would have nailed this like really subtle way, an uncomfortable way that he's bad, but you would almost buy it. Whereas 
Beatty and Hoffman only went about halfway through to like, it would be funny if we were really shitty songwriters and singers. And they, they couldn't quite bring it home with the right, exact right tone. So it is hit or miss. Now, my point is, I kind of just think it's mediocre. With all the hubbub over the last 30 years now about this, and even when I was a kid, I remember hearing about Ishtar when I was a kid. I, I think uh, it might just sort of be mediocre. And I guess the question is, should mediocre films be put in movie jail. I mean, directorially, it just sits there. It doesn't move well directorially. It's not directed well at all. There's no craftiness in the direction. There's a there's a real tone problem. And then romance, whatever triangle they were trying to go for with Isabella Johnny, isn't, it doesn't work. It does, like Ryan said, once they get out of New York, it, it falls completely apart, with exception of when Groden, whenever Groden shows up. I will answer your question. Should this movie, <laughs> which is mediocre, be put in jail? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, and by the way, there are good stories about Elaine May and Isabella Johnny because, of, of course, Beatty, <laughs> Beatty and Johnny were dating. Fucking her at the time. Yeah, and I think May and Johnny were having issues. And as a side defense to this, but movie, gentlemen, by the way, gentlemen, 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 we seem to be discussing everything that's going on outside of the picture. The troubles of production. Well, because how I have to, to, I have be. to do a lot of smoke and mirrors with this one. It's Ishtar, but I, but, but I don't, let, I don't me, want smoke and mirrors. I, mirrors. I didn't a, know anything about this movie. I, I had heard it stunk, and I, I thought, wow, I like those two actors. And Elaine May, it was not mediocre. It was a failure to deliver. And when you go to the store and you buy a, a box of Cheerios, and you get home and you open it, and there are rocks in there. You should go to court and sue the supermarket because there are no oh, Cheerios in there. Timely, timely reference, whoever said that. <laughs> the kids will love that. The story has tremendous problems, okay? I don't know who the opponent is. There's well, a king please, of Ishtar who shows Mr. up 50 Kruger. minutes. The judge is interrupting only for a question. Do, do either the prosecutor or the defense have any idea what the plot of this movie is? Well, yeah. Once, Obviously, we know the setup of these two losers who aren't giving any opportunities, and suddenly they're given this opportunity to do something with their careers in M Morocco. Then when they get to Morocco is when the international, the, the two doofuses in over their head element starts. And Charles Grodin is a CIA um Operative, and, and then they get to uh, the desert, and they're mistaken for these two. Then I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, uh, yeah, I, I but I, I but got you know what? I don't know the fucking. <laughs> what's the plot of the Avengers? I don't fucking like. No, but here's the problem. Johnny seems so invested in something that's happening to the point where she cries at the end of this movie, <laughs> where it's just like, wow, like she's so invested in this. She's either a leftist terrorist or a communist terrorist, and then she has been double crossed by the CIA, who are also double crossing the king of Ishtar. This movie is so complicated. And when I tried to actually piece together the geopolitical aspects and also a map that foretells two prophets, not three or one, but two because it's a two-hander with two stars. Well, in the 80s, you had, in mind to your question of why they left New York and why it became this way, I think in this late 70s and into the 80s, you had to set your movie in the Middle East. E everyone was going to the Middle East or at least Oh, this was interesting. I have a bit of trivia because at the time this movie was made, Coca-Cola owned Columbia Pictures. And the producers wanted to film the desert stuff in the Southwest. But Coca-Cola had some vested interest in the Middle East and in Morocco. So they wanted to actually film the movie out there. Which leads me to another point, which is... 
this movie might be worth watching if only for the camel scenes because you know they are totally improvised. In right. The and, of the and, and again, and, and to me, when I think about that scene, which is a little bit of the centerpiece, and I think it points to the sort of hit or missness of it. I don't I mind that scene. I would dare to say the miss or missness of it. <laughs> it misses, and then every now and How then it misses. How badly do you miss? Yeah. It, it's not an easy movie to watch. I will say that it's always teetering. It's always teetering between mediocrity and total disaster, where well, but, you, it's yeah, never because easy. May, she had directed before, right? I mean, she directed Heartbreak Kid. Did she direct Heartbreak yes, Kid? Yes, yeah, that was Heartbreak Kid. Um, you know, she was a good director, but, I mean, there's plenty of great directors that have not been able to pull off this kind of thing. I mean, I, I think as a side defense, in talking about Isabella Johnny, and like Steve said, it has nothing to do with the movie, but at least you get to be, you know, maybe if you haven't been introduced to Isabella Johnny, this movie introduces you to Isabella Johnny. But the turns in the scenes with her, she breaks into the uh, the uh, the hotel room, and then within a few pages of dialogue, you know, they slam all this story into a single scene, you know, in one interior. There's no there's no growth. It's it's a series of scenes where they're like, well, they'll make a big turn here. So we'll just, the scene will be long and there'll be, uh, the actors will have to do some heavy lifting to make you think that all of a sudden Beatty is falling for her. It's bleh. Well, they never pay that off either, right? The whole thing. And who, who does she end up with? I, she just end loves up with them either both. of them. She says, I love them. I think they're both amazing. You know, you know, you know what's interesting about that scene? And that scene is in the trailer. It's the one of the, it's like the final scene when they're performing finally. And they've gone through, if you're watching the trailer, you'd almost think, oh, I've seen this movie. They go through a journey. And at the end, they, they're still performing and they're either right back where they were or they found their niche or they're successful. I actually don't quite know what we're supposed to believe at the end of this. but And then she looks at them and it's got this Vitario Starro lighting and she looks really sweet in it and she's looking at them and she says that line, whatever you just said, Ryan, I, I love them both or something. And in that line and in that shot and in that moment, there's a great movie. If a few things would have gone differently, they would have earned this moment. And it, it kind of points to like, the, this wasn't a like a ridiculous endeavor. It just went off track for a variety of reasons. I also think, wasn't there like a um, a studio head change during this? There was in the post-production process, yeah. And, the, and Again, and again, gentlemen, we're talking about outside of the frame here. And it is my job as whatever I am to keep us focused on the film that we just... Well, let me ask uh, you this question. Let me, let me ask you both, were you, were you not entertained? Was this a movie that didn't hold your interest, even if you were watching, wow, I'm so interested by why this movie is such an utter failure. No, I wanted to laugh. I wanted to laugh. I watched this going, oh my God, this scene is so not the direction it should go. Classic example. For no point in the plot, they come across some gun runners in the desert and Beatty splits off and then they find Dustin Hoffman, a diminutive Jewish man, and assume that he's Arab and is the translator, which makes no fucking sense. But okay, I'll buy it. And then he pretends to speak these various dialects. And nothing offends me, but this I found offensive. These men have Oscars. This woman has written, <laughs> she co-wrote Reds. And they're standing in the desert with him going, I cringed. And comedy does not age well. Marx Brothers. I don't think you still watch the fucking Marx Brothers. That's 80. Every week I watch Duck Soup. I can't get enough Duck Soup. <laughs> no. You could. But the Marx Brothers also were vaudevillians. They performed their movies for a year on the road to get them in, into shape. This was slapped together, poorly written script. All I thought as, as a viewer, and I had never seen this movie before, when they were in that desert, 
were those long, boring, unfunny, uh, God, I wish one of them would have died scenes. I just kept looking in the distance, hoping, praying that Fury Road would take over the movie. (laughs) And all of a sudden, there'd just be a bunch of cars, and then, you know, that's my property! (laughs) And then, oh, that... Why could I thought? Why didn't I watch Fury Road for a fifth time? Uh, it goes back to my point of is this, and I and I and I do agree with you on that particular instance. And it's interesting the 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 set piece, like you said, Ryan, when they get caught by those two different groups, and Hoffman, up until the point Hoffman opens his mouth for his his choice on that gag, which I will agree is an awful choice on every level that he made. Up until that point, it was actually a pretty good setup for a gag. There's a lot of funny people coming up with some funny gags in this. That particular setup, if you had Chevy Chase or Will Ferrell or Jim Carrey, or they would have made a better choice as to how to actually do the the bit. Hoffman makes a bad choice in that particular instance. I still maintain, by the way, you're actually you're acting as if Hoffman has never done a funny thing on camera. He's done plenty of funny things on camera. He just didn't. He he just wasn't up for the task on this because he's, he's never not, carried a movie as a comedy other than Tootsie, which is a brilliant script and a brilliant idea. He's also not Dustin Hoffman. He is Dorothy Michaels. He is someone else, which not many people could pull off. But I, I didn't laugh that much through Kramer versus Kramer or Marathon Man. I didn't find them as funny <laughs> as maybe you guys did. But when I think of, I need someone who can take this crappy script and funny the fuck out of it. I don't, give me little Dusty Hoffman with his crazy feathered hair and his uh, weird (laughs) face. He he does not come to mind. It's almost like an SNL sketch with the guests for that week. And you sometimes give them a little bit of a free, it's the whole thing is actually like an SNL sketch that goes on too long. But Jail, Jail's always seemed a little harsh for me for this movie once I've seen it. And I, I, I did watch it. You know, when I was going through a big Beatty phase and I wanted to see what all the hubbub was about. And even back then, I was like, oh, obviously it's not, it, it isn't that great. But movie jail always seemed crazy to me. And and Ryan was singing the, what were you singing, Ryan? Telling the truth is a dangerous business. <laughs> so, Ryan, your question, did this movie make me laugh sometimes? That made me legitimately laugh. You, you might have made me laugh more when you did it. But it that bit, so some of their songs made me, made me laugh. Some of their... It was a lot of hit or miss. Yes, and they don't sing any of those songs once they go to uh, North Africa. They completely abandon that. I I think them them as bad songwriters is a funny movie. Well, they pay it off at the very end. But they, of course, have to learn that they they need to give up their dream and become, uh, for some reason, Carol Kane and the woman that's at the end of uh, No Country for Old Men are their wives who are in one scene and both leave them almost moments from each other. Why the fuck did we need to know that they're both divorced because they're, they can't sing and can't support their beautiful wives? And then there's a suicide attempt. I mean, it's like a completely different fucking movie. Oh, not Rabbi Brahamovitz. Oh, this That's is like a, a Woody Shonda. Allen bit or something. His parents show up. Okay, let's move into the um, uh, closing arguments uh, for both of you. Steve, why don't you begin your closing arguments? Well, I will cut against what I've said this entire trial, which I will talk about what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, I think I have clearly stated uh, the facts that this movie is unfunny, unworthy of uh, anyone viewing it, uh, unless we're torturing someone in Guantanamo. Um, (laughs) Actually, if the NSA is listing, that's a pretty good idea. Maybe play a little (laughs) Miley Cyrus underneath it. You'll get them to confess. I I want to summarize outside of the fact of the artistic and comedic and uh, cinematic failures of this film 
It is a living testament to the excess of a long-dead system in Hollywood where the star, the director, the writer is always right and shouldn't be questioned. As I researched after watching this pile of fetid crap, that, that's what happened to this movie. No one was in control. No one was in charge. No one knew what they were doing. No one thought to speak up about the script. You know, no one thought to say, these two leads are not funny and don't have a following that thinks that they're funny. Why are we doing this? And no one thought, hey, I looked at some dailies. This is a pile of garbage. Maybe we should stop, get a new director, maybe recast it. Maybe, I don't know, send uh, Dustin Hoffman to, uh, you know, UCB for some improv classes. <laughs> um, but I, I feel in my heart of hearts that this movie should be in jail, that that is clear as day. But as a fan of films and a student of the cinematic legal system, I feel like I have to voice my opinion about how this film should be treated if it is found guilty, if it goes to prison. Because this film is not your common criminal. It shouldn't be in the general population with your Scarfaces, your Battlefield Earths. This film should be treated like a brilliant serial killer. It should be kept alone, studied by the, the greatest minds in film psychiatry. We must learn from this film so that it never happens again. It is a testament to the Ovitz era of Hollywood, where egotistical stars and weak executives caves to the package, and films that never should have been made, like this one, grew out of control. It's a monument to excess, poor planning, cocaine-riddled deal-making, and just simply bad ideas. Think it's 1987. This movie costs 50 million dollars. Today that budget would be way over a hundred. Think of all the great HBO series that could have been made for that money. Think of all the great low budget comedies that could have been made for that money. Think of all the young directors who wouldn't have to use Kickstarter and annoy me every day to fund their first projects if they had access to that money. Both those ding-dongs made 12.5 million dollars for this pile of dreck. Not only is Ishtar a waste of a very, very, very long hour and 47 minutes. It's also a waste of money. It's a waste of talent. It's a waste of their time and our time. And for this reason, I demand that this film be placed in movie jail. All right. Well, defense attorney Kyle, why don't you rebut? As Kruger was complimented for complimenting earlier on my opening statements, let me compliment him on, what did you call my, uh, a right fine a right fine speech. I, I will argue that I, I would like more cocaine-addled uh, filmmaking in 2015 as much as we had in, in 1987. And also that $12.5 million that Beatty made on this might have helped him to make Bugsy and Bullworth, his next two films that uh, we can argue about another time, but are, are, are brilliant. But you, you make a lot of great points. I, I, I think it's very interesting. You know, this is a sort of orphan of the late 70s, early 80s when uh, a lot of these filmmakers, stars, were able to give, you know, be given carte blanche, which gave us a lot of amazing things in, in the 70s and early 80s, but also um, led to the demise of that, the system that you, you, you sort of spoke of. But to understand Ishtar, you have to understand how Beatty chose his projects, almost all of which were pet projects, were passion pieces for him. Pet projects are very difficult to bring to fruition. Ask Marty Scorsese. His pet projects, Last Temptation of Christ, uh, th that took nearly 20 years to make. Gangs of New York took nearly 30. And those aren't even his best films. Which brings us to Warren Beatty. About six pet projects that he wanted to make, that he dreamed about making for years and years, um, some of which he started dreaming about when he was a kid, like Dick Tracy, he was able to bring to fruition. Dick Tracy, Reds, his John Reed 
Kami Epic. Um, he wanted to make that for 20 years. Shampoo was his ode to rules of the game. Uh, that took over a decade. Bugsy, decades in the making. Heaven Can Wait, also a movie he wanted to make since he saw the original. He had a Howard Hughes movie he wanted to make for decades and decades and decades. He just made it last year. He'd waited 50 years to make it. So this is a guy that sees through his pet projects. I think Ishtar was a little bit of that. I think just like May, he wanted to do a kind of ode to to the, the Bob Hope stuff. I will agree with your point earlier, by the way, Kruger, that Bob Hope is not funny. That I don't think we'll ever have a disagreement on. But he'd always wanted to do this. And he'd had success with comedy before. Shampoo is a comedy masterpiece. Heaven Can Wait is a classic. Um, his dramas are filled with a lot of humor, too. Two doofuses on the road. This is a tradition that goes back to the beginning of cinema and continues to this day. Dumb and Dumber, like Ryan Broadock. It's not a ridiculous endeavor. Uh, he hadn't made a movie in five years. His last movie was Reds before this, a three-and-a-half-hour historical epic about the Bolshevik Revolution. You can't blame the guy for wanting to lighten it up a little bit. And you can't blame him if the result was maybe not up to par with a few of his previous films. As comes up so often in, in our trials, the people that were making, were like we're hitting 1,000 in the 1970s, um, were kind of hitting 500 in the 80s. It's still not a bad percentage. Uh, as we find out during some of these trials, a lot of those movies in the 80s that we've dismissed sometimes have been unfairly dismissed. And even if I was just to defend the merits of, on Beatty's involvement alone, I think it could be done to, to, to go through and say this guy, you know, who did Bonnie and Clyde and Shampoo and Reds. And, and then there's this oddity where he tried to pay homage to the road movies. OK, so be it. It's an interesting part of his career, I think. And to keep with the baseball analogy, you still go to see a superstar even when he's having an off year. So in summation, ladies and gentlemen, over the next few weeks, I want you to go on a Beatty bender. Don't start with this movie, <laughs> though. Start with Bonnie and Clyde. Move into McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Then Shampoo. Then Heaven Can Wait, Reds, skip Ishtar at first, go right to Bugsy and then to Bullworth, and then come back and view Ishtar. You'll have a very forgiving heart after seeing those other amazing films. I rest my case. Very interesting. I'd like to congratulate both sides of uh, this case. You were both very much on point, especially Kruger. You came up with a very interesting take on this movie. And what's doubly interesting is that if I had been the defense, I would have taken the curiosity tactic, right? This movie should be saved from movie jail, if only for being a curiosity. That would have been my tactic. But I also loved your you, – you swung it around to a Beatty of Waugh uh, and not at all, at all wrong, uh, because yes, Beatty is a god of cinema. But let's—I'm going to side with the prosecution on this because it's kind of undoubted that this movie just does not work. It is—it is a curiosity, and it is worth seeing. Maybe that's why I loved when Steve was talking about like it deserves special treatment, even in movie jail. There is something to be gleaned from this movie in terms of its uh, disaster. Yes, it's Jeffrey Dahmer. We should study it. Yeah, we should study it. But no, we should—it should not—it should not be in general pop. You know, it's funny too. They. Um, all the cuts that went back and forth, they each had their own cut. Beatty had his own cut. Hoffman had his own cut. Elaine May had it. I mean, it must have been a fucking... I mean, that's a good point that you brought up, Kruger, about the system uh, uh, back then. Like, can you imagine... And I mean, it happens once in a while now, too. Four or five different final cuts between stars and editors and directors. I mean, it's fucking... No crazy. one was in charge. You could, you could tell. Okay. If Warren Beatty has a passion project, do it for no money and go out in the desert with a camera and a, a script and go have fun. But he got Well, they paid. offered to do that, actually. Beatty, Beatty and Hoffman both offered to uh, forfeit their upfront fee for a back end and the studio said no. Well, and they Warren, were, you know, they were smart. every time you you read anything about Warren Beatty, I I like I don't know the man, but purely going on his career output, 
he you know he can he continued to work with with people time and time again uh, who he championed and was friends with. I mean, it's interesting how much he fought for her to do this movie. And, you know, he's kind of a model on how to run your career in some ways, and in, in, especially in, in this very difficult... How about how to run your life? <laughs> yeah. I know. His biography was amazing because I was waiting for the chapter where everything went to hell and there was no chapter like that. <laughs> By the way, he, he championed, you know, we're debating embarrassingly in 2015, debating... It's embarrassing that we don't have as many female directors working. And this is a time when he was backing Elaine May. But you look at his movies, his roles for women were varied and excellent and strong all throughout. I mean, you look at Halle Berry in Bullworth. You look at Diane Keaton in Reds. You look at um, all three of the characters in Shampoo, in Heaven Can Wait, uh, uh, Julie Christie. Hey, he's got handsome and uh, he can write and direct. He's just not funny. Leave that to the ugly he people. He is funny, though. That's where you're wrong. He just, in this one, funny. he just, he just... He, he was in over his head, but I actually think he's funnier than Hoffman in this. He is funny. Shampoo is one of the greatest comedic performances of all time. Okay, let's wrap up here. Uh, this court has found for the prosecution, uh, Ishtar, you are to be taken to movie jail by the bailiff with limited visitation from family and friends. And that is all. This court is adjourned. <laughs> Movie Court. Movie Court.